Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you all. As Deirdre mentioned, we are just starting a series on the first five books of the Bible, the five books of Moses, also called the Torah, the Pentateuch, and the Law. And uh, today we are jumping into the text of Genesis after our introduction last week. I was reading this week an interview by a Dr. Ben Story of Furman University, a professor there, and he teaches political science and philosophy, and he regularly asks his students, what is the best way of life? And his students always respond and look at him as if he is crazy. What are you talking about? You can't ask that question. And the discussion was around... Um, the, the notion that it's impossible to even think about or wonder and pursue a best way of life. To ask that question, which has been one of the questions um, what the modern world has been asking itself for hundreds of years, that's the core of philosophical inquiry, that's the core of what it means to seek after wisdom. We are in a culture that is no longer asking that question. It's not possible, so why seek it? And if we're not seeking it, how then do we order our lives? Do we order our lives around personal pleasure, or making money, or finding security, or having a big family, or having no family? What, what is it that governs our lives if we haven't answered the question, what is the best way of life? And when we stumble upon what we think is going to work for us as individuals, as autonomous individuals, increasingly, which is increasingly the case in our world, how do we know that our self-directed efforts, guided by our own minds and wishes, how do they know that they're going to harmonize with other people? How do we know that we are going to harmonize with the environment around us? If we are just approaching these things as, as individuals with no sense that we can collectively come to an understanding about what the best way of life is about. So despite what usually happens when the text of Genesis 1 is approached, Genesis chapter 1 is actually a world-ordering text that is posturing a way to understand the way uh, the, the world in such a way that that has an assumption that there is a way to live in this world um, that is governed by how it was created again usually when we come to the text of Genesis 1 the big questions of uh, evolution versus creation and these kinds of things come up and we'll touch on it just a bit um, but it, it, it's actually not even a consideration. Uh, well, I shouldn't say it's not a consideration. Um, God creates and God works. And so that's, that is somewhat at the heart of the creation versus evolution debate. But the, the um, efforts to harmonize the text with science or to show from science that the text is nonsensical it really shouldn't be the discussion that we have around Genesis chapter 1. There are days and there are weeks and there, are, there is time in this passage, but it's not a historical or scientific account. So what I want to show today is the purpose of, of Genesis chapter 1, verses 1, that's 1, 1 through 2, 3. The section actually ends in, in chapter 2, verse 3. But we're just going to read a little bit of it here to get started. 
I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Now again, this is not a historical or scientific account of the creation of the world. And let me just point out a couple of ways of why this is the case. First of all, if you go into day one, you have the creation of light. If you go into day two, you have the expanse in the midst of the water. So the expanse in the midst of the water. So from chapter 1, verse 2, it says that waters covered the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over these waters. And so what God did is he created what we would call the atmosphere, the skies. And so that's the second day. And so you can see here that actually as the days unfold, there is no day where the earth is created. The earth exists. Chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We don't know what the beginning is. The beginning of when God started to create. But if you actually get into the six days, it assumes the existence of the earth already. Because in day three, day three, God brings the land out of the waters. So again, the earth existed. It existed in a formless and void state, but it existed prior to the six days. So the six days do not contain all of the created efforts, the creative efforts of God. That's just one point. The second point is that if you are going to count days and evenings, so their days and evenings start on day one, but if we are going to count days and we're going to count evenings, the means through which human beings count days and evenings is the sun. The sun does not exist yet, or at least the sun has not been placed yet in a place relative to the earth where days and evenings can be counted. So the text sets itself up in such a way that doesn't seem to make sense if you were going to approach it scientifically. It's got a different intent about it. Something else is going on. Now, the context of the six days of creation in regard to the earth is that it is considered disordered and uninhabitable. 
It is formless and void, which means it's, it's empty and it has no, no structure or order to it. And so the actual unfolding of the days is to counteract this formless and void state. So the first three days is when God brings order and form to that which is orderless and formless. The last three days is when God fills, so if things were disordered and void or empty, God orders, puts form to things, and then he fills them up. So you have day one, the creation of light separating day from night or light from darkness, and then day four, he creates the sun and the moon and the stars um, that fills up and creates that light, and this then gives us the ability to order ourselves in regard to time, because we use the sun in its proximity to the earth, and that's how we measure time. Days and years and seasons and months and minutes, all of these things. So we now have the ability as human beings to order ourselves by time because of what God did in day one and day four. Day two, God creates the skies. So he puts some form, he puts some order to this expanse that is between the waters. So you have the atmospheric waters and you have the waters that are covering the seas. So that's on day two. God creates this form. And then he fills the heavens. He fills the skies with birds. And then he fills the seas with fish and other animals that live in the oceans. Day three, God creates land and then plants vegetables on that land and then creates living creatures on day six that fill up that land. And so it's a, it's a way to understand the world. It's not a scientific approach. It's not trying to explain all of the details. It's trying to explain that God created places that were inhabited by things that brought order to the, to the world and then obviously brought order to Humanity, which is the pinnacle of creation. Now, one of the things that we're going to see as we go through the first 11 chapters of Genesis and really all the way through the Pentateuch is the use of poetry. And the poetry in Genesis 1 through 11, the poetry provides a summary highlight of the narrative text that has come before. So if you're wanting to follow the primary big ideas of the Pentateuch, and especially, well, Genesis 1 through 11, and then again, all of the Pentateuch, it's the same pattern. When you get to the poems, stop there for a bit, because that's where the big idea is contained. And so you have, um, in verses 26 and 27, the first poem in the Bible, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish and of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And here you come to the poem. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So this is the pinnacle of the narrative of the text 
to this point. The creation of humanity. The creation of humanity. God has created human beings in his image. They're going to govern and have dominion and rule. They're stewards. They're stewards of what God has created. They are made in his image. And being made in his image means that they have some characteristics. They have some likenesses that God has. They're not God, but they're like God. They're like God in the fact that they can create, that they have power to order, that they have a work to do. But they're also like God in their nature. And so commentators for centuries have noted, if you look in verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. But he begins by saying, let us let us make man. Let us, plural. So God is referring to himself there as a plural, as, a, as an entity that exists as one, but with multiple, with multiple entities. Now, we don't have yet the, the doctrine of the Trinity developed uh, that we get later in the New Testament. But we have here God referring to himself in the plural, and then Later in verse 27, so God singular creates man singular in his own image singular. In the image of God, he created him singular. Male and female, plural, he created them, plural. And so we see here at the beginning that, that God is creating male and female to exist in his image, in his nature, as one together. And this is going to be picked up by man and woman in the next chapter. One together, they are to rule. They are in relationship. They are in harmony as, as human beings. And they have been given the work to, to steward this earth that God has now ordered and created. And they are to multiply and fill it. And then on day seven, so here's another Here's another reason why you can't look at the text from a scientific or historical standpoint. Day seven, God stops working, which you're familiar with, but have you ever noticed that there is no end to the seventh day? There's a very distinct, repeated pattern in days one through six. And God said, let there be something, and then it was so, and then there's morning and evening the first day or the second day or the third day, but there is no end to the seventh day. There is no end to the seventh day. On the seventh day, God is dwelling with humanity. He created and he is God. He has given them the responsibility to manage the affairs of this earth, to create, to order. And God is dwelling with them. And he calls it the Sabbath, the day of rest. And it's for, and, and, and it's, and it's, you know, we ha, it's, it's translated as rest there, but the idea is that he stopped working. He stopped working. He blessed it. He delighted in it. It was a very good thing. And the word good throughout this text means that it's a desirable experience. It's something to pursue. It's something to enjoy. And so day seven images a state where God is delighting in his work, 
where God is delighting in human beings and where human beings are also delighting in God and delighting in all of the, the various things that God has created for them, not the least of which is the food that he has blessed, blessed them with, which is emphasized in the previous text. And so you have this image of a Sabbath that never ends. This is really, this is how the text ends, this, this account. A Sabbath that never ends, where human beings are enjoying the presence of God and the presence of each other as they do work in this world that is in complete harmony with itself. That's the idea. That's the image. It's kind of like the perfect state. It's, the, it's what we would consider to be ideal. Ideal. And a law is later established for humanity to honor the, the Sabbath, as we'll see as the Pentateuch unfolds, and we'll touch on some elements of the New Testament as we go, God is continuing to work. Next week, we'll look at the fall of humanity and how humanity messed up this ideal state. But throughout Scripture, God is, is pushing and working and striving to bring humanity back to this place where he is dwelling with them, there is delight, there is happiness, there is good, there is joy, there is pleasure, there is harmony. That's where God continues to put all of his efforts. This, this state, this is kind of like the picture of what, how things were supposed to be. A never-ending, again, a never-ending state where God dwells with humanity in harmony with, with the creation. Some commentators even say that Genesis 1 is actually an account of temple building. We're going to see some temple building in the Pentateuch. The point of the temples have always been, this is, where now, this is now where God is going to dwell. And there's all kinds of rules about how the temple is supposed to be built laws about how the temples are supposed to operate because it's a sacred place, different from the world around because the world around has been corrupted. So here we see that the entire world was supposed to be a temple. It was supposed to be the place where humans would dwell with God. So this is the prologue to the book of Genesis. It's the prologue to the Bible. It sets up this scene and the, that the rest of the biblical narrative is going to be un, unfolding and, and explaining why this is no longer the case and what God is doing to bring humanity back into a place where he is dwelling with them in harmony along with the rest of creation. So it's an account of God's ordered world with humanity stewarding it in his presence. And so we can see that Time is ordered and in harmony with everything else. The environment is ordered and in harmony with everything else. Family is ordered and in harmony with everything else. Work is ordered and in harmony with everything else. And it's described by God as very good, very desirable for humans very desirable for God, and a place where there is great happiness. It was the presentation of a world order that was very different from the religions of the day. The religions of the day 
worshipped the sun. We'll see that when we get to Egypt. They worshipped human beings. They worshipped creatures. Here the text is pointing humanity to acknowledge that God is creator, that God alone is to be worshipped. He is the source of creation. He is the source of harmony and order and happiness and goodness. God is the source of everything that is desirable. And as human beings, we recognize, we recognize that we still have power over this creation. We still have power over our world. And we are striving to that which God has said is very desirable. It's very desirable for human beings to long for harmony in the world that they live in, with harmony with each other, harmony with the environment, harmony with their time, harmony with their work, a place of happiness. So we still desire this very, very desirable thing that God has created. And we still use the power that God has given us when it says blessed. It also means that power has been given, authority has been given. And so to a large degree, we still have power as rulers over this earth under the authority of God. But we have a problem. When we think about time, there's probably not a single person in this room that would say, you know, I have a complete and harmonious lifestyle in regard to my use of time or time's use of me, right? There's probably nobody that would say, everything is perfect in regard to time in my life. Most of us are either working too much or working too little or not using our time effectively. Most of us would have to acknowledge, I mean, there isn't a day that goes by where multiple stories in all of the media outlets aren't showing us and raising the concern about our unbalanced and inharmonious relationship with our environment. We have droughts in some places leading to wildfires that are bigger and hotter and last longer than any on record. And in other places, we have hurricanes and floods where more things are being destroyed by more water than we have on record. We have tornadoes, we have death as a result of all of these things. So again, like time, we do not have harmony with our, with our environment and world around us, the land, the animals, but we long for it. And we still are exerting all of the power that we can to bring these things under our stewardship, but they slip away. It's like trying to grasp the wind. And again, work. We work too much, we work too little. We don't have a balanced approach to time, we don't have a balanced approach to our work, and this brings a lot of disharmony in our family. Even, even good marriages, even good families struggle with conflict, struggle with strife and divorce and breakups and estrangement. These are all things that we desire and acknowledge are very good, but 
we do not have harmonious relationships in these spheres. The very spheres that are addressed, time, environment, work, family. These are the things of Genesis chapter 1. We have the desire, we have some power, but we do not attain it and we are not happy. Why does this escape us? Well, increasingly, as a, as a culture, as a, as, a, as a planet, we are moving away from a sense that nature has an order, that there are natural laws, that there is a human nature. Terry Ingleton, in his book, Materialism, um, says that you know, there, there's this postmodern ethic where all ordering, all sense of human nature is all just social, cultural constructions. We need to deconstruct these things, and we need to build new structures. A great example of this, and I think one that, that is very prominent in our, in our day, is, is gender. Here we clearly see God created human beings as male and as female. And together they reflect God's image. But our culture would have it that there are multiple genders or no genders, and we can create as many as we want. We think that we can take the, the world that God has created and ordered and create something new and different as if we were gods ourselves. And as long as we continue to have that stance, we will continue to experience the disharmony in all of these various spheres, our time, our environment, our work, and our families. And so the people of this world argue that if it has no order, then why seek it? Let's create our own. Let's create our own orders. And we're moving this way because we don't acknowledge God as God. We don't acknowledge God as creator. We don't acknowledge that we ourselves are stewards. Stewards serve lords. Stewards serve authorities. Some commentators refer to us as vice regents. We have been entrusted and empowered with a responsibility to work in such a way that, that fulfills the, 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 the desires and the obligations of the, of the Lord. We are either atheists, or if we believe in God, we believe that there, there is no relevance to it. Believe in what you will, it's irrelevant, because God is not concerned with the everyday affairs of, of people. Or if he is concerned, there's no way to know it, and so let's just live our life as we would want to. And the idea of submitting to God or submitting to some order is oppressive. Oppressive because we've been there and done that and it just seems to lead to oppression. Or the removal of my freedom, the removal of my freedom sounds oppressive because I want to pursue the life I want to pursue without anything governing me. How could, how could submission to any authority or order or master provide happiness? Robert Bella, a sociologist out of Berkeley, he says, we have thrown out the old orders. Nothing is transcendent. Nothing is beyond our human experience that calls us to a higher plane of living. So what are we to do? Well, we're going to, the, the, the diagnosis of the problem is going to continue to unfold. That's really a big part of Genesis 1 through 11. Here's where humanity got itself when it bucked the order. 
So we're going to look at how God diagnoses the problem, and we're going to look at what God's solution is and how he unfolds that. But I want to conclude today with just this notion of what the New Testament, of how the New Testament addresses this, going back to this idea of God's Sabbath being a never-ending day in which he and humanity dwelled together in harmony and peace The book of Hebrews says that Jesus Christ is our Sabbath rest. It's the only one of the Ten Commandments that isn't repeated in the law of Christ in the New Testament, requirements for the churches to follow. It's the only one of the Ten Commandments that isn't repeated. It's not repeated because when Jesus Christ came, the Sabbath was fulfilled. And we are now able to once again enter into this state with God where we enjoy his presence for eternity, dwelling in harmony with him. We obviously know that humanity failed in its ordering around God. We have all failed. What Jesus did was order his life completely around God. He says, I say nothing and I do nothing outside of the will and ordering of God. And so Jesus became this this faithful man. Jesus became what the scriptures call the second Adam. And he fulfilled all that God required of humanity. And then he broke the curse, the curse that we're, we're, we're going to see next week. He broke the curse. See, humanity was kicked out of the garden. Humanity was kicked out of this place, this temple. Humanity was kicked out of this temple and could no longer enjoy the presence of God, the presence of each other, and the presence of the in the presence of the world and the environment in a completely harmonious way. And so we brought a curse upon ourselves, and death entered into our world. And so Jesus entered into death as the faithful Adam. And he destroyed death by raising from the dead, showing that the life-giving power of God, the same life-giving power that created the order here in Genesis chapter 1, has a new order in Jesus Christ. In fact, as we learn in the New Testament, it is Jesus Christ who created the things on, that are described in Genesis chapter 1. So Jesus is the author and power of life, entered into death, rose from the dead, and said, if you believe in me as God, if you recognize that you are made in my image and not God's yourselves, and that I have a calling upon you to dwell with me in unity and harmony as my creation, if you believe that, and you strive to to Order your lives according to my order, with me as God, recognizing that my death and resurrection has brought life back to humanity, then we can enter into the Sabbath rest. And that's what the author of Hebrews says, I encourage you, let us not fail in entering the Sabbath rest. In union with him, we can experience the harmony the peace, the goodness that God has desired. 
So let us continue to believe in Jesus Christ, our Sabbath rest, and recognize that for those who have believed in him, we are in a state of union with God and can enjoy him and his goodness forever. We're going to be affected by we're going to be affected by our decisions that we made as sinners and continue to make that puts us out of God's order. But our union with Christ through faith in him always keeps us in that Sabbath rest. Let me pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for being the Sabbath rest, the, be- the, the image of a never-ending day seven, the image of a never-ending day dwelling with you in complete harmony with each other, in complete harmony with our world, in complete harmony with our time and our work. What a vision, Lord God, and isn't it something that we all aspire to? God, our prayer, in thanks to you, help us to recognize more and more Jesus Christ as our Sabbath rest and to believe that that vision that he provides is possible for us, those who have faith in him. In your son's name we pray, amen.